Today's scripture reading is from John, chapter 1, verse 35 through 51. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard, who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the town, hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here, truly, is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus responded to him, Do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, Truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for even as we go into this season of Advent, as we are progressing through and remembering the fact that uh, you came. God, I pray that we would remember that you are always coming, that you are always present, that you are always with us. God, it's so easy to um, treat you as out of sight, out of mind. And so whatever it is that we've assigned as uh, this looks like you, if we don't see the things that look like you, then we assume that you aren't here. And yet you give us a regular rhythm every year. We have chosen uh, a time of the year to remember the fact that you are a God that answers his, uh, his, our prayers. He, he keeps uh, his promises and that when you promise to bring an answer, you indeed do that. And so, God, I pray that even as we are people that are yearning for redemption and yearning for restoration and yearning for all the ways that we see the world broken, we want to see it healed. God, this is just a small yet big microcosm of the world you're bringing, of the kingdom that you're bringing. You're a God that shows up. You're a God that always comes on time and that you always supply not always what we want, but exactly what we need. God, will you do that for us now, even through your word as we uh, break into it? I pray that this would uh, illuminate our understanding through the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been in this uh, series in John, and we've been talking a great deal about uh, what it means uh, to, to understand Jesus. Last week, I, I, I ended with one of these thoughts. I said it's important for us to always answer this question, these two questions. Who is Jesus? And what do we do with his claims? Who is Jesus? And what do we do with his claims? 
we, we made a point to, to point out it's, it's very uh, dangerous for us to recreate Jesus in our own image and then go, that's the Jesus that I'm worshiping, that's the Jesus that I love, that's the Jesus that I trust. The problem is that Jesus isn't the Jesus that's been revealed to us. So when that fails us, we start going, God, where are you? Well, because we recreated, we remade God, likely in our own image, called it Jesus. And he's not the God of the Bible. He's not the God that's been revealed. So what, what do we do then with that? Who is Jesus and what do we do? There was a, a book that came out uh, maybe about eight or nine years ago. It's called After Heaven. And there was a, a word uh, that the author used, or this line the author use, uses in the intro uh, that was really interesting. It's something that I think all of us can either identify with or it's something that we've heard uh, before in our lives, just, just spiritually. If you're just a human being, whether you've been a Christian or not, you've heard this phrase before. Here's how, how the author puts it. He says, the watchword of Americans today is to say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. In other words, I'm searching for a spiritual reality, but I don't expect it. I don't expect to find it in organized religion or in kind of mainline dogmas, right? So it's become a pretty popular thing to say. Right? For some, some good reasons too, right? We've seen real abuses that happen within organized religion, and so we do uh, the thing that we often are prone to do. Uh, we, we, we've referred to this kind of logical fallacy before, right? This with this, therefore because of this fallacy, this happened alongside this. It must be because of this that, that it happened. It's bad logic, but that's how we function. Bad things happen when this happens. I don't like that. Well, we do this with the idea of what we call organized religion. And, and because there's been real damage that's happened within organized religion, there are legitimate gripes and legitimate frustrations. And so people have tried to figure out, what do I do with this? I don't trust this over here, but yet I'm still spiritual. People have rejected the idea that secular science can give meaning to life alone. They'll, they'll, they'll grant that. That's why people have to say I'm spiritual, because they realize the natural world alone is still not enough. I may not trust organized religion over here, but I can't just trust science alone because it's still not answering some of my deepest, innermost, dare I say, spiritual needs. So people realize that they need something. People realize, by and large, that what exists alone isn't Enough, But what they won't go back to is what they remember as traditional religion. They can't do that. We don't want to do that, right? Why? Because in many ways, traditional religion looks like something that just stifles creativity and is just smug moralism, which in a lot of cases, that has been the, that has been the case have this idea of what it means to be moral and what it means to be right. There's a smugness, a lack of true engagement. It's very cold, disconnected. It just doesn't seem like it's a safe place for people to function. And so we have to deal with this. We have to deal with this, right? People are yearning for spiritual answers. And we just don't always know where even to look. So if somebody says there is a spiritual answer, how do you know to trust them? If you think you have the spiritual answer, how are you to be trusted? In other words, what makes a credible witness? If somebody claims that I have uh, the one thing that you are longing for, 
The one thing that you have been waiting for with bated breath for it to show up to bring real happiness to real joy. Somebody says, I know where the answer is. What makes you trust them? What makes them a, trust, a trustworthy witness? What makes you a trustworthy witness? Well, our text today is going to give us a bit of that answer. We're going to see, listen, we, we talked about what the, what the setting was, right? People have been waiting and longing for a Messiah. Now, they had remade their idea of a Messiah into their own image, right? They had an idea. They did what we do. I know what it, I know what it means for me to be saved, right? So I know what kind of Savior I'm looking for. Regardless of how God is designed and God has already said and declared, here's the kind of Savior that I am. I've already determined for myself the kind of Savior that I need. Well, that was the case then. They were looking for a certain type of Messiah. We, we talked a, a good deal about that, what was happening contextually, historically in this Roman-occupied Jerusalem, how they thought we need a military leader to show up to restore Israel again, right? We need this. We're longing for this. And we talked about what it meant for John the Baptist to be the one to come before everyone and say, hey, I came here not to bring attention to myself, but I came to prepare the way for the real answer that's coming. That's why I'm here. And we talked about the need for us to be able to see that as the, the very example. No matter what our giftedness is, no matter what we think our calling is, it's never about us. It's never about my esteem. It's never about my shine. It's always about how do I steward whatever it is God's given me to point that attention back to him, right? So all of that being the background, now we see John has already said, listen, the first few verses we looked at, God is the glorious one. The second set of verses we looked at, John basically says, I'm not the glorious one. And now it's, what do I do? How do I be an effective witness of the glorious one? What does it mean for me to be an effective witness of the one I claim is the glorious one? So in this passage, we see what happened when Jesus encounters these folks for the first time. And what happens when he encounters them? They have to witness him, and then they become followers of him, and they become disciples. We're looking at the beginning of like the first disciples of Jesus, and we're watching what it took for them to be disciples. We're, we're watching what it took for them not only to be followers, but to be effective witnesses. And so it's important also that we look at this. When you look at how John, right, in this passage, we see John is the one that's kind of sharing this, uh, this, uh, this uh, account of the gospel. Uh, he's, he's one that got, probably goes in more depth uh, talking about the very nature of who Jesus is, more so than the other three gospel writers. And so he gives us this story. We need to ask why, because there are some details that John brings up here that we don't find in the, uh, or they go into more depth than the other gospel writers. Why is he bringing these things up? You need to understand, and this is really important because in, in today's, in a lot of ways, we can be really kind of biblically illiterate because the stories are so old and they've been going on for so long, we just don't read them anymore because we've heard them so much we think we know them. And we got to be really careful to, to, to not view this as just a nice little myth and a nice legend. John intentionally uses language here to convince us that this is a trustworthy account. And you'll see this as we dig a little bit deeper. There's some words that John uses that, that I would say proves that he wants us to see this as a trustworthy account, a trustworthy witness. He doesn't, he's, he doesn't just give us this because it happened. He, 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 he believes that this story offers us something different, offers us something deeper than just smug morality, or just kind of the emptiness of science and, 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 and with this huge glaring hole there. He realizes there's a third way, and he wants to offer that 
as a third way, how we see Jesus, how we witness Jesus. This is the gap between what some would call spirituality and what some would call religion. Jesus actually bridges that gap. So the first step to being an effective witness that we see in this text, if, if you were to think of any phrase that is used in this, in this passage, the phrase I would say that encapsulates everything is the phrase, come and see. Come and see. Because there's so much in that phrase, and, and you see that lived out throughout the story, right? Because the first thing we see when he says, come and see, look again, uh, when, you, when you look at the first few verses that we said in verse 35, John chapter 1. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. This is, mind you, after uh, John has just been preaching all this time. We talked about his kind of wild and crazy church in a while, remember? And, and, and this kind of crazy world he was living in, and the way he was living, and the way he was dressed. He's been preaching all this time, just waiting, waiting for the Messiah to show up every day, just preaching the same gospel of repentance, waiting for the Messiah to come. And the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. The first thing he does when he sees it, he, when, you see, when you think about what Jesus says here, or what, what ends up coming back next, he says, uh, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, there's, there's some things in this that's really interesting. They've been following John all this time. And we talked about this last week, how incredible it is that John is completely actually pushing them and content with his followers now following Jesus. We said this many times. It's a very unhealthy spiritual environment when the person who may have been leading you, discipling you, feels a sense of ownership over you. That's what spiritual abuse looks like. That's not what it looks like when you're saying, my job is to just point people to him. Whether you're in these pews or elsewhere, whether you're in this home or elsewhere, whether you're in this city or elsewhere, this is not about our kingdom. It's his kingdom. And John realizes that. And that's, and that's hard because, you know, you, you, you've got these small little uh, gatherings and people are gathering in the temple and they got their place that they go and he's got this church out in the desert. He could easily be like, okay, follow him, but make sure you come back. Get, matter of fact, the way churches will function now, hey, go over there and get whatever good stuff you can get, bring it back so we can appropriate that, and then we can have a hopping church too. But he doesn't do that because he realizes it's not about him. He realizes none of this is about him. And so he sends the disciples go, and immediately he sees Jesus. He sees the Messiah. He sees him, witnesses him, and immediately starts to turn attention to him. Now, look at, look at this. Come see. I would say come and see. One aspect of coming and seeing is the ability or the call to examine the evidence. What do we start with? Who is Jesus? And what do I do with his claims? It's not enough to just say I believe in Jesus. What do you do with his claims? I have to examine the claims. I've got to examine the evidence. It's the thing I love about Jesus is he never just calls you to just blind faith. We always say that faith is not just this meaningless leap in the darkness. It's an intelligent step in the light. So, so on some level, maybe not every question is answered, but Jesus says, I invite you to examine this. You know what Jesus never says? He never says, don't question me on that. Now, sometimes his answer may be one that we may not like. 
Lord, why'd you do this? By the way, where were you when I made the heavens and the earth? He might give you an answer like that. (laughs) But he never, he never prohibits you from asking because he says, listen, if you want to come and examine, I invite you to come and examine. See, unhealthy religion, right, looks like this. Believe this, don't question. Believe this and don't have any rebuttals, don't have anything there. And really what that looks like is when we start reacting that way, don't don't question, don't question. It just says, I don't have enough of the answers to be able to respond to this. And I feel very defensive about that, which I'm starting to make that about me, right? And so so you see what it means, right? What it means first to be a witness or to witness something, to come and see is to actually examine the evidence. Examine the evidence. Look at the first time. Like we just said, disciples are told, right? They're they're told about Jesus. John the Baptist just said, there's the son of God. There's the Messiah. They they hear this incredible news and they follow. He asked them what, what they want. And they just say, where are you staying? Like, I, we don't even know enough about, we know enough about you that we realize we need to know more. Where are you staying? And he says, come and follow. Come and see. See, that's something that real healthy witnessing looks like. It looks like this. Uh, if you have a question, if there's something you want to know about God, then you stop and you go, I want to know this. And he invites you and says, come and see. Come and examine. Come and, and dig into this. He may not always, you realize Jesus doesn't just go, glad you asked. Here are all the qu- answers to your questions. Why? Because Jesus realizes something we say, but we don't always believe. That true faith is not just about this destination. It's always about the journey. See, Jesus cares about what we learn about him in the journey. Not just, hey, I left left it all out there for you. No need. Because what would be the point in following anymore if you've got all the answers? So he lays this out. It's amazing how Jesus engages us. I mean, these folks are no different than, than, than we are. So he engages us the same way. Come and see. So you see that first one. The second time, and we'll look at it again, the second time is when Nathaniel shows up. And you see what happens, right? Nathaniel was told about Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, is here. And he responds, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what does Philip say? Come and see. Uses the same words that Jesus used, right? He's like, listen, there's a, and we'll talk about this more. Listen, there's a lot of ways to answer your question, but the best thing I can tell you is come and see. Come investigate. So, so coming and seeing includes, it's not limited to, but it includes this ability to examine the evidence. Now think about this. Who is John writing to? John's writing to a people, as we said, similar to us. I mean, how can we examine? If they're, just, if they're similar to us and the same call is to us to come and see, how could we examine the evidence of what he said and how he lived? Roughly five to six times we see this phrase, he saw and he said, or, or that word he said when, when, it, when it talks about uh, Jesus saying these things, uses this word that is interchanged throughout the scriptures with witness. You know, he witnessed this, he shared this, he said this. And what it literally means is, and this is interesting, when John uses these words, he uses this Greek word that, that is inter- interchangeably used. He's basically trying to get us to understand. He's saying, I was there. I witnessed this. I actually saw these things with my own eyes. In other words, my testimony is credible. My testimony is admissible. I want you to believe this because I want you to know I witnessed this and I want you to be able to trust my testimony. So... He uses very concrete words to describe actual observable things, not just inward impressions. 
Not just like, I have a feeling that this might be the Messiah. I have a feeling that what I heard from other people might be true. And so I'm telling it to you. He's using very concrete words, and there's a reason why that's really important. I mean, these are eyewitness accounts. For example, when they, here's a, here's a big one. If you were to ask, well, well how, how long did they see Jesus? How long were they with Jesus? When did they start uh, being with Jesus? And then you look at the answer, right? You see it here. Uh, they spent time with Jesus until 4 p.m. Now, that might just seem like a throwaway piece of uh, understanding, right? Piece of information. Like, oh, okay, just details for the sake of just adding details. But there are no meaningless details here. This detail matters if, if for nothing else, uh, there's, there's a there's a, a Duke professor, uh, he teaches English there, his name's Reynolds Price, and he wrote a book uh, uh, that, that really kind of lays out the understanding of the Gospels. It's called The Three Gospels. And in the book, he kind of makes this point, it's super, very salient. He makes this point that uh, one thing that you always have to remember is that in modern fiction, modern fiction, if you're going to be a fiction writer today, you need details. If you're going to tell a story, you need details. This person went to this, uh, time, this place at this time for this amount of time. You, you need details to help create a story. Modern fiction always works that way. We would never really be able to follow the story if we didn't have that. But ancient writing didn't do that. Ancient myths didn't do that. Ancient myths didn't use hard and fast details about who, when, how, very specific. They didn't use that. Because these were meant to be myths. These were meant to be, uh, 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 in many ways, abstract. And so we get some, they were trying to teach basic principles, but the actual details didn't matter. Why does this matter? Because ancient writing didn't use specifics like that, and yet John does. Why does he do that? Because he wants you to know that this isn't a myth. He wants you to know that this is trustworthy. This is such admissible evidence. This is such an admissible story. I'm such a credible witness of this that I'm going to give you fine details that pretty much would never happen, right? You, you never see a story that's like uh, Athena got into a fight with Zeus and they fought for about three hours, but about 337, they got tired because he had to eat. You don't have that. Why? Because those details wouldn't matter because they're not trying to give you an actual historic account. They're trying to give you a principle that they want to be able to, to teach and spread throughout their villages. So, so John using real concrete language, technical language, he's trying to show this is not a, a legend. This story, this, this, this Advent season that we're celebrating, it's not just another story to feel good in December. It's not just something else to hold on to when I'm sad. It's not something to just cheer me up. This is not just a myth or a legend. This is a historical record that can be tested. So how can you know if you have read the evidence? And this is where we almost have to kind of spend a lot of time looking at these texts to be able to say, okay, is, is this something that can be trusted? Is this something either A, the writer was intentionally lying or the writer was telling the truth. It's one or the other, right? Either the writer is saying, I want to create the guise of something that can be trustworthy, even though it isn't, which we said many times would be such a foolish task back then, because when the book of John is written, there's way too many people that can say, no, 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 that didn't happen that way. 
We've said this many times. If you want to create something that's a lie, but you want people to believe it, wait a really long time to be able to release it. It'd be horrible for me to, to make up something about what's happening right now and go write it on Facebook, because all of y'all, I know some of y'all would jump on it, would be like, no, 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 that's not what happened. You're a liar. <laughs> because it's too easy to be able to verify. It's too easy to be able to disprove, but that's not the case here. So John uses technical language that can easily be disproven, yet he doesn't, because he wants you to know this is trustworthy, and you can come check this. You can come investigate this. So witnesses, if you're going to be a witness, if we're going to claim to be a witness, if I'm going to claim to truly say I am a witness of who Jesus is, then I have to have examined the evidence, and I have to have the, a posture that says I'm always going to be examining, I'm always going to be reading, and, I, and I'm going to bring my questions, and I don't have to check my brain at the door. I can really bring my issues, my hang-ups. The other thing that witnesses do, witnesses not only examine evidence, not only ask really hard questions, but witnesses follow. It's one thing to say, I saw that, or I saw what he did, and I can, uh, I can truly say without equivocation that he did that. But it's another thing to say, and therefore, I am following him. That's a very different thing, right? So, so it's not enough to just say, hey, yep, that happened, I saw it. It's another thing to actually say, um, I'm going to follow. Now, when he says, come and see, what is Jesus calling them to do? Move from where you are to where I am. This is, this is really important because many times when people say, I'm spiritual, not religious, they've actually made their point of origin themselves. And they're just waiting for who I really am to catch up to where I am. And the moment I can finally go, oh, now I know who I am, my spirituality is intact. You realize you're the point of origin. You're the final destination. Everything begins and ends with you. But Jesus says, if you're following me, then you actually have to move from whatever you feel, whatever you think, wherever you've been to wherever I am. And that's a different call. That's actually harder because it requires you to kind of step outside of yourself. I mean, you remember, here's the other thing to remember. You remember when, when, when uh, last week, you know, you saw John seeing Jesus and he's like, look at the Lamb of God. You know, the disciples don't move until later. I mean, you would have thought that they were like, is that him? Deuces, John, I'm out. I'm gonna... they, he doesn't, they don't do that. They kind of wait for a while, like many people, like we are prone to do. We are wont to kind of go, okay, that looks like that's him, but I just don't know if I can, I don't know if I can do it yet. Why? Because I know it might end up costing me something. Following Jesus, it's, it's not a cheap endeavor. It's not a cheap relationship. It's going to, like any relationship, it should cost us. We're not saying it has to necessarily be painful or abusive, but it should cost something. It should cost something. So if I'm going to follow Jesus, yeah, there's going to be something I'm going to have to give up. And, and likely there's going to be something about myself, how I view myself, how I think about myself, what I want to be a comfort to me. I might have to give some of that up if I'm going to follow him. I think at best, maybe sometimes they'll be like, hey, I'm willing to almost be on, 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 on the side of you, Jesus, but I don't know if I'm really ready to kind of be behind, follow him away, because on the side, we think that we're on the side of him because we're choosing the thing and we're inviting him to come alongside us. I've done this thing, and now I'm inviting you to come be and bless and honor and, and, and anoint what I've already chosen to do. That's not following him. 
So what does it mean then? It means a witness truly says, I'm moving from where I am to where he is. It's almost like when you read an author, right? There's an author that you really, really enjoy, and maybe you join a book club for this author, and you guys just enjoy this person's works, and maybe he or she is, uh, decides to, to jump up and join your book club. We had that happen in one of our uh, book clubs, our women's book clubs. There was a book that we were doing, and the author who lives in Atlanta joined one of those meetings. I think it was at your house, wasn't it, Bethany? Yeah. Caitlin Curtis, she came in and, and, and joined them. I got a chance to meet with her after, and she talked about how great it was to just be with the folks who are, like, engaging her book and, and all of that. So let's just imagine you've got somebody that, that, that you've loved this book, and you've enjoyed the truths that are there, and you've engaged it so much, and you're following some of the things that you like in there. But let's say, so, so there's no question, part of that book touched part of the lives of the women that were reading that book, Right? And it may have been different parts, right? Because if you read any book, maybe not everything in the book hits you the same way. You may not even agree with everything in the book. You have that luxury. You have that option to take different authors' books and go, I like this, I'm going to use that. That right there, that doesn't apply to me. Or I disagree with that, right? So I can let part of the book, part of the author's life, affect part of my life. But that's not following. That's just selectively choosing which things that you like. If anything, it might be selective following, but it's not complete following. But the difference is, what happens, when that, what happens if all of a sudden, you not only just have parts of that author's life touching you because of the book, but you marry them? You see, when you, once you marry someone, it's not like you get to pick and choose which parts of them. I mean, you can try. That's going to be a whole other problem. But you, you can't pick and choose which parts of them affect your life. That's why we say marriage is such an important thing to consider before doing it because you don't get to, it's not a pizza. You don't get to go, this part of your personality, please leave that at the door, and this part I'm willing to accept. It doesn't work that way. You see, what happens when you marry, you are bound, you are now saying every part of your life is going to affect every part of my life, whether I like it or not. That's what it actually looks like to follow Jesus. You see, every part of who Jesus is begins to impact every aspect of our lives. That's really following. So again, this whole I'm spiritual, not religious, what that also begins to imply is I'm, I, I trust myself and my spiritual compass enough to know which things about Jesus are good enough for me and which things about Jesus should be rejected. And that's not following. And that's not a reliable witness of who Jesus is. We said this last week. There are people who are like, I love Jesus, and, and I, you know, I, I love things about Jesus. I just don't like some of these other things. And I'm like, have you then considered many of the other things Jesus has said? I love Jesus. Jesus is so loving, and he would never do. I love when people go here. Jesus would never say, really? When's the last time you talked to him? When's the last time you examined the things that he said? Jesus would never, really, because Jesus made some statements I never hear you quote when he talks about, like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man knows the Father except by me. That's pretty exclusive. Oh, I see, but you've recreated Jesus into somebody that is other. And that's the Jesus that, you see, you realize you can't pick and choose. All of Jesus impacts all of us if we're really followers. If we're not, then yeah, we get to pick and choose. Selective Jesus isn't Jesus at all. So how do we follow Jesus? How do we do it? 
We're supposed to be witnesses. How do we effectively follow him? It's interesting. When you look at the very end, you look at verse 50, uh, 51 uh, of uh, chapter, one, uh, chapter 1, and he says something here. He says, then he said, truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now this, this is such a, it's interesting because, okay, here we're using the CSV, if you're using the NIV or the ESV, they always use kind of similar language like this, right? Truly, truly, I say unto you. It doesn't really do it justice, what the actual Greek says here. It's really hard to, to translate this well. I think the closest is actually the old King James uses the phrase verily, verily. Thing is, we don't use verily anymore, so it doesn't impact us the same way it would have 16th century folk, right? But what's interesting about that is that the word that's being translated there is an Aramaic word that is the word from which we get the word amen. Amen. Now, what does it mean when we say amen? So be it. It is so. To some, some rabbis would say it means I agree with my life. Because whenever somebody would get up in the temple and share a truth, somebody had to examine it and say, that is true. I would put my life on it. A lot of times we're saying amen to stuff that ain't true. A lot of stuff we're saying amen to stuff that we would never put our neck on the line for. Because ultimately, anything that's declared needs to be examined. So Jesus, now here's why this is interesting. You would never say amen, amen before a statement. You'd always wait until after, right? Because somebody would say something, people would check the scriptures to make sure it's true. Yep, that's exactly it. This is kind of the image we get in 1 Corinthians when we talk about people who are abusing spiritual gifts, people who are abusing tongues and not really allowing them to be interpreted so that people can be benefited. And that's why they were like, let one person speak, let other people examine. What are they doing? That's, and then what does he say? How can somebody say amen after your giving of thanks? Why? Because people need to examine. It's not enough to just say, I just believe the Lord told me. Can I test it? I'm not saying that he didn't say something to you, but the problem is don't push it or don't expect other people to hold that as biblical truth if it cannot be tested. So Jesus does something very different because no one would talk like this. They've asked him this question and he, he literally goes, he says, amen, amen. This is true. Jesus is using the word amen to introduce his words. And you think about the words that he says, he's basically saying, what I'm getting ready to say to you is true. And we'll talk about it really quickly in a minute, but what I'm getting ready to say to you is true. And ultimately, what he's getting ready to tell Nathaniel, he's getting Nathaniel, you know, Nathaniel's going, okay, I believe you, I believe you. He's like, hey, that's great that you believe, but you're getting ready. To, you're wondered by, you're, you're amazed by that. You're getting ready to see some things that you've never seen before. But see, that can't be tested yet. But for the first time, the truth is before you, and my words are going to be enough for you to trust in ways that has never been true of any human being before. And no Jewish rabbi would ever say that. For those who are like, well, Jesus never really made these claims about himself. He most certainly did. For him to be able to assert something that's true simply because he is and because he said it, that's saying a lot. So he goes in and he says this statement. He says, amen, amen, and then lays this out. Before you determine what I'm saying it's true, I'm telling you this is true. If you want to come and see and believe, we need reliable reporting. If you want to know Jesus personally, you've got to read his words regardless of how it makes you feel. 
That's important. We got to be able to check and, and continue to, to examine. And it's not impersonal. This is not like this impersonal thing where it's like, he said it, I believe it, I'm just going, right? He wants you to actually examine and dig in because personal following without trustworthy reporting is impossible. You can't just follow a thing without the report being trustworthy because that's how you actually end up in very dangerous environments. This is how you start believing things that are false. And then we say this all the time. False doctrine usually leads to bad practice and bad practice usually leads to real pain, real suffering. People get hurt. And this is what's dangerous because what do we do then if we're like, well, I believe, you know, I believe certain things, but I'm just going to pick and choose because I don't really trust the reporting. Here's the scary thing about that. If you don't trust the reporting, then ultimately you're just following yourself. I mean, that's just, it's the only logical options, right? Either I trust the reporting that's there or I take certain things that I might believe and, and dis summarily dismiss the other things which says, ultimately, I'm still following myself because I get to determine which part of this is true and which one isn't. And that's just not an option that, that we have if we're going to trust something is credible. Here's the next thing witnesses do. So we see, yes, witnesses examine and witnesses follow. But also, a faithful witness, not just, they don't just come and see. They go and they tell. It's actually not enough to just go, okay. I came and I saw and I believed and it's, it's true and I know that and I'm joyous and I can go home and rejoice and sing songs and write great things and, and maybe share it with uh, family, my family immediate, maybe share it with my kids. But there's something beyond that, right? This idea of coming and seeing me mean going and telling. On some level, what we see the example that's laid here, there's something about, there's something about following Jesus that encourages us to process his claims within community of other folks. You see, we say this often. Christianity is never meant to be an island. It's real popular to say, all I need is just me and Jesus. That's not what Jesus says. It's not what the Bible says, right? If that were the case, why would he say, confess your sins one to another? He'd be like, no, just confess them to me. Or what does it mean to bear one another's burdens? No, just let me bear your burden. Why? Because Jesus not only cares about your relationship to him, he cares about your relationship to those who are made in his image. So, so you can't say you know Jesus if you don't know him in community. You can't. It is hard because people are crazy. People are hard. People are rough. People aren't always trustworthy. So yes, we've got to use wisdom and how to engage that and how to understand how do I ascertain whether or not this person here is trustworthy and this one isn't. And there's going to be a lot of mistakes and there's going to be a lot of hurt. There's going to be a lot of warts. But that's what we're called to do. We've got to be able to process this with our friends. How do you know this? What do you see happen here? John is rolling. He sees Jesus. There's Jesus. They, they start following. We know one of the disciples is Andrew. We don't know the others. A lot of debates over who that one is. They're not named. We don't know. But, but Andrew, right, all of a sudden, he, 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 he sees John. John says, Andrew, the other one, whoever you are, <laughs> that's Jesus. So John starts with seeing and then telling, hey, that's him. That's the one. And then what does Andrew do? Andrew's like, that's the one. I got to go tell my brother. So he goes to Simon. Simon, he's here. Now, we can't go into it here, but I love the fact that, like, Jesus is just such, he's got such authority. He sees Simon the first time. He's like, 
don't know if I like Simon. You look at Peter to me, so you Peter now. I mean, that's probably not really how he did it. But, but it's really interesting how he shows this incredible authority. Of, can you imagine if anybody meets you for the first time and is like, you look like a Persephone. I'm going to call you Persephone. You're like, I don't even like that name, number one, Jesus. So you got to come again. because No, nah, you wouldn't do that. But think, think, think about this. Think about the fact that Andrew goes to his brother Simon. J- Jesus says, yes, you've come. You've seen me. I'm now giving you a new name. And we see why way later why Jesus does that. So now Peter is, is in. So Andrew leads, so, so John leads Andrew to Jesus. Andrew leads Peter to Jesus. Then you see later, Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, come and see. He, what does this mean? It means that friends lead friends to Jesus. Family leads family to Jesus. It's not enough to just go, well, I got it. I'm good. I'm going to heaven now. A real witness, if you've truly witnessed, let me tell you this, if you've witnessed certain danger coming, would you not start telling everybody danger is coming? If you knew for a fact that there was this incredible nuclear outbreak in one area and there's like nuclear fallout and don't drive over there because if you inhale some of that, this stuff's going to happen. You'd be like, don't drive over there. Don't go there. Somebody says, hey, I think I'm getting ready to go that way. No, don't. Why? Because I'm a witness to the danger that's coming, and I'd love you too much to see you go that way. Well, that's exactly the same thing. If you're a witness of the greatest joy and hope and truth that has come, how can you not share that? I'm reminded of a really famous atheist, Penn Jillette. You guys know who Penn Jillette is from Penn and Teller, the old kind of magician group? And he's a huge, 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 avowed, unabashed atheist, uh, very smart, very logical, and and engaged in some really good conversation points. I remember one time he said, he said, you know, it's hard for me to have respect for those who claim to be Christians because I've been around some of these folks for so long and I rarely have ever get anyone to actually try to tell me the actual claims of Jesus. They just want to argue about maybe the things I don't like about it. He's like, but if you really believe that this is the greatest joy and you really believe that life outside of him is is the greatest thing that would bring the greatest travail, then why would you not? And there was somebody at one of his shows, the reason why this sparked it is because somebody at one of his shows started pleading with him after one of his shows to say, can I just get you to to consider the claims of Jesus? And he said, that's the first time I had real respect for a Christian. That's the first time. Because logically, it just makes sense for him. If this is more than just a way for you to feel good about your life, for you to be good, feel good about your family, for you to feel good about a tradition you have. But if this is objectively true, it has nothing to do with whether or not it's tradition. It has nothing to do with whether or not it makes you feel good. It's objectively true. And in his mind, because he's thinking logically, he's going, if this is objectively true, why have you not shared this with me? That's what a real witness does. That's what a faithful witness does. This is how you know if you've made your faith about you or if you've made it about the only one worthy of real glory. If you've made it about you and your glory, then absolutely. Because it's like, hey, okay, I'm in relationship with this person over here. I know them, we were, you know, and we've been able to talk about some spiritual things. But I don't know that I really want to go there. Why? Because I might be uncomfortable about how I'm not, trust me, I'm not saying get into the uncomfortable convos that you force. We're not, listen, there are a lot of people who are like, I think a lot of us have, some of us have grown up and like, hey, this is how you evangelize, right? This is how we witness. And, and, and you have your, your sheet with like potential rebuttals and what people might say back. And, and so the goal in your mind is, if I win the argument, I win the person. That's not how it works. Scripture says he who wins souls is wise, not he who wins arguments. 
The goal is not to have my, 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 my quick return salvo of weapons to respond back to the person who has. It's like, listen, my whole goal is just to point you to him. That's it. My goal is to point you to him. And so in the ways that through, through, through organic relationship and getting to know you and we begin to talk about spiritual things, I want to be able to get to this point of the conversation because I can't be a faithful witness of who Jesus is if I don't. Doesn't mean we be jerks about it. Doesn't mean that like you're like, I can't talk to you if you can't get where I am. on. That's not what this is. This is truly just about, listen, this is something that I really believe is objectively true, and I want you. I, we're in a trusting relationship. I want you to be able to just consider the claims. I, I, I'm not even trying to, I'm not asking, matter of fact, I'm not even asking you to be a convert. I'm not even asking you to believe in Jesus. I'm just asking you to consider his claims. Can we just do that? I've had some really good conversations with folks. I remember in college there was a guy who was just kind of, you know, nominally had grown up in church here or there. And we, another guy in the military actually too, a friend Rashid actually that, that a few of us know. And I remember just having these conversations where we built a friendship and these things were working out. And then eventually it's like, hey, have you ever considered this? One person asked me like, why are you even reading that? And I'm like, glad you asked. <laughs> have you ever considered some of these claims? And what do we do? We just sat and started walking through some of these claims. That's it. I'm not even asking you to believe right now because it's really not on me to get you to believe. It's on me to just be a witness and point to these claims that are there and then let God do the rest as you evaluate the claims. That's why it's very dangerous when we preach kind of a cheapened gospel of, listen, if you just trust God, he'll make everything all right. If you just trust God, everything's going to come together. If you trust God, the things that are hurting you will be made right again. That may not even be true, and that has nothing to do with the claims of Jesus, does it? How does that set you apart from any other pagan? It doesn't, because that's not Christianity. That's what some people will call therapeutic, moralistic deism. I feel good, so it's therapeutic. Moralistic, I'm doing good things. And deism, there's a God, I'm not really defining who he really is because I haven't made those claims known. So there's a new version of Christianity that's not Christianity at all. It's therapeutic, it's moralistic, and it's deist, but it ain't Jesus. This is what a witness does. A witness says, I gotta make sure that you are just in a position where you can just consider the claims. Consider the claims, come and see. And then once you've come and once you've seen and you've considered those claims and now you're like, wow, I see who this is. Now I can't do anything else but to go and tell. What are some of the things that really hurt us when it's time to, when we want to be able to share our faith, right? When scripture says, uh, be ready to give an answer to everyone that asks, right? For the reason of the hope that we have. I, I'm supposed to have that. I, I'm supposed to be ready to give that answer, right? What is it that makes you, and really it's not just, you got to understand this, it's not just all the th great things that's happened to me, I've got to be able to share the very claims, the claims that Jesus made. I believe those claims, and here's why I believe them. Here's what made me get to a place where I believe them. And so you see this, and you see that start to play itself out uh, throughout, this, throughout this text. And I think also one of, the, uh, one of the things that makes it really hard, right, is when you get to a place where, look, for a lot of people, and not everybody, but for a lot of people, they come, to know, they come to know who Jesus is because of a friend who came to know who Jesus is or because of a family member that came to know who Jesus is. I know several of your stories in this room, and there are several folks for whom that is absolutely your, your testimony. I had a friend 
or I had a Korean grandmother, or I had a, a, fam- a, fr- a family member, or, or I had a, a, someone I was dating or something. And they started to share some of these claims with me. And, and, and I could not ignore those claims. And something arrested my heart in such a way that Jesus became an unavoidable issue. And once that happens, this is what happens, right? Friends or family or, or maybe a wise mentor, something. Somebody came and, and, and was a part of that process. And listen, so, so for those of you who nowadays, it's a little bit harder, right? Because, you see, they didn't have social media back then. They didn't have YouTube. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have, they didn't have all these TikTok, whatever that is. I'm feeling old now because I don't really know what that is right now. I just know my kids ain't got it. But, <laughs> but, what I, but, but here's what's interesting in this kind of society now, yes, a lot of things can be shared and disseminated because we have social media. So yes, for some people, there are some people at this church who started coming because maybe uh, you saw me speak at an event somewhere and it made you want to cu- curious to check out what's happening here. Maybe you, uh, you, you saw something shared on social media, maybe a sermon or maybe a quote or maybe you saw somebody that you knew in one of the pictures and you're like, oh, you go there. I want to check that out. Maybe you know someone that serves on the worship team and the different uh, folks that are here that sing and you, whatever that is, here's what's dangerous about that, especially in the case of even larger churches, because now the reputation precedes you. So now it's the reputation that draws you to the church. It's not necessarily somebody who really knew Jesus to share the claims. Here's the danger. If you're here and that's your story, if you're here and you've come because maybe not necessarily somebody who, uh, know, who, who, who knows Jesus, who has sh- uh, engaged those, w- those claims and began to share them with you. Please hear this. You will not be able to understand the claims of Jesus if you don't process them in community with someone else. And our pride makes us think we can. Our pride, I'm smart. I'm intelligent. I can throw all these things out. I, I, can, I can make sense of this myself. I don't need anybody else to do that. That has never been how Christianity works. Yes, there are exceptions, but who wants to live their life by just the exception? What we see throughout Scripture is God's people come together, and they build relationship together, and they, they process these claims together. They wrestle hey, I don't know if I understand this or, or this is hitting me in a weird kind of way or this is making me feel offended on some level or, or there's some things that this is triggering from things in my past that I don't really know how to engage it. The goal is not to just get rid of the things that make you feel uncomfortable. That's immaturity. The goal is how do I examine the claims in such a way that I can wrestle well with the things that are making me uncomfortable? How do I do that? Well, I can't trust myself enough by myself to do that. So I got to find folks that I can trust for sure because people will manipulate. I want to be able to be in a safe environment where I can process these things and go, I'm just not sure about this. Now, here's the thing. There are a lot of people who will be like, I just want to know, but nobody's ever told. But then when they get into a community and real things start getting kind of processed, it's too much and they shrink. And then they're like, but nobody, but nobody, but nobody. And it's like, no, you were here, but you got into these hard places and you didn't want to stay and process anymore. And see, we, we're never, we don't have that luxury if we're really following. Hey, this is uncomfortable and it's really hard, but I need to stay present. I can't just run. And yes, we live in a world now where it's much easier to run. It's much easier to be like, I don't like the way this is making me feel, I'm done. And yet we still need to be present. The other thing we need to remember is uh, if, if, 
One of, the, one of the reasons why we need to process this and understand who Jesus is, if this were just a philosophy, then yeah, we could just kind of play with it however we want. If it were just a philosophy, then there's certain things philosophically I can hold on to and certain things that I don't have to. And if it's just a philosophy, then a great teacher would do the trick. If it's just a philosophy, listening to the right pastor or watching the right uh, video clip of the right pastor would be enough if it were just a philosophy that needs a good teacher. But see, Christianity is more than just a philosophy. It's about a person. And the only way you know about that person is with other persons who have been transformed by that person. And so it's, it's vitally important. Now, with all of that said, if you don't know, or if you're like, hey, I, I want to be, if you're that person, you've come, but you're not really connected to, to anyone, you, you, don't, you don't have a community wherein you can truly process that well. And what that really means is I need to be in a community where maybe there's some people that are a few steps ahead of me, right where I am, and maybe even a few steps behind me and kind of figuring this out. That's really healthy. You know why? Because everybody in this room, not only do you have something you need from community, you have something to give to community. And none of us, we don't function well if you're not there. So if you're in a place where you're like, I want this, I need this, maybe I've never had this. There are the, we have one formal way here at the church that, that, that we do it. We have our community groups where uh, Jen announced them earlier. We're starting those in January really want people to regularly get involved and commit to those because that now there are some informal ways and there are some folks they have some informal relationships already where they are regularly doing that i get that but by and large it's good to engage in some of these formal ways of so so you understand we're not just doing this so we can say we have groups well lots of churches have groups we should have them too or people just want to feel like they belong okay that's great but this is more than just feeling like you belong it's not enough for you to feel like you belong to each other. You need to know that you belong to Jesus. And the only way you do that is by regularly dealing with the claims of Christ. That's what community looks like. The reason why we struggle so much with trying to get to a place where we can trust and we can share is because we, we lack either patience, we lack courage, or we lack humility. It's hard because when you get into that place where you want to be able to share something and, and you look at what John says, John says, look at the Lamb of God. He says it multiple times. Look, the Lamb of God. Look, the Lamb of God. And it took a while for them. It's almost like he's kicking them out. Are you listening to me? The Lamb of God is right there. And they finally go and follow. Because sometimes if you're the person that's trying to give and trying to share, it may take a while. It may take a while. It, and here's the thing. The reason why you might get frustrated that somebody's not believing the way you want them to believe is because you thought your ability to argue well, you thought your ability to explain well, you thought that you had such a good handle on this particular point of who Jesus is, you thought your explaining would do the trick, but it's not about you. So you just faithfully keep showing up, faithfully keep saying, yes, this part I don't know, but let's look at Jesus for a minute. And if it means you're doing that for every day to your dying day, you are faithfully witnessing who Jesus is. Then it also means that it means that we've got to get to a place where we show real courage. How do we know this? Because when you look at what happened, look at what happened when Jesus runs into uh, Nathaniel again, or when uh, Philip goes to Nathaniel. You look again at what, uh, what it says, start at verse 44. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Look at what Nathaniel says. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good? Now, a lot of things have been said about this particular passage, right? I mean, because, yes, there's no question that there's probably some deep 
some, some deep implicit and explicit bias on Nathaniel's part because of the, 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 the reputation that Nazareth had during this time. Where is Nazareth? Nazareth is, is uh, outside of, of this, it's just outside of this Roman uh, uh, military base. And it's a place where a lot of the soldiers would go and just exploit the young women there. It was a place where people would go to go get drinks. It was a place, it was just kind of a hole in the wall town that nothing good ever happened. And Jesus came from there and he's going, how is it possible that this thing you're telling me, you're witnessing to me about something you claim to see that comes from this hole in the wall? I was going to like bring up a city, but I don't want to offend anybody. So I'm not going to make it, I'm not going to say no city. And, get, and, and, and what's interesting is, yes, there's some of that that might be there, right? But also, there's something else here for Nathaniel. Nathaniel's also uh, somebody who's, who, who clearly knows his Bible, and there, there are no prophecies that m- mentions Nazareth anywhere. So he's clearly going, yeah, can anything good come out of there because there are some crazy people? But also, he could easily be going, I've never heard anything about a Nazareth. I- I've never heard anything about that. My experience and my tradition tells me that, that those things would never produce a Messiah like that. And so on some level, you could easily go, if somebody came to you with that, that's a reasonable, that's a reasonable argument. Why do we have to say that? Because a lot of times we lack the courage to stay present when people have legitimate rebuttals about stuff. You see, our response oftentimes is to shame them into believing it. Well, the only reason I'm going to believe it is because you're just so messed up and you're just so blah, 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 blah. Might be true, might not be, but that's not helpful to the argument, is it? So, so easily, Philip could have been like, he could have responded with indignation. <gasps> How dare you say that? And we get real personal. Don't say that about my savior. Don't say that about my king. We could easily go there, right? But he actually doesn't do that. He doesn't even get into the, he doesn't make it personal. He doesn't make it, oh, no, there's a rebuttal I can't handle. What do I do? He just says, come and see. Come and see. What what is he really saying here? He may be saying, you know what? I don't know the answers to this question. And you know, that actually builds a lot of trust, by the way. It's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, I don't know, but you don't leave it there. He goes, I don't know, but come, let's go see. Let's go journey together. I may not know this answer but I truly believe that the answer's there. So let's go. We may be wrestling with this for life, but let's go. You see, this is what a faithful witness looks like. We're patient, we're courageous, and then we're humble. We're humble in such a way that we do just what we just said. We're able to engage the hard questions. Don't get me wrong, there are bad questions. People always say there's no bad question. There are bad questions. There are bad questions. But here's what I mean by a bad question. Bad questions can be bad if the intent of the question is bad. You see, a lot of times people will ask a question that, and they're being completely dishonest with the question. The goal of the question is just to maybe fumble you up or just to get you in a place where they can now render you uh, not a credible witness any longer. But, but good questions where somebody says, no, I have an honest question and I'm really trying to understand this because maybe there's a part of me that wants to believe. I want to be intellectually honest. So if this is something that is intellectually true, I want to believe it. Can you help me understand it? Then that's a place where we ought to be. You see, a credible witness allows for you to maximize every level of incredulity. 
A credible witness says, I'm going to let you maximize every area of your unbelief, and we're going to keep engaging all of that because I believe this is true, and it's not true based on, it's not contingent upon how clever I am at defending my position. I believe that this is true. And so if I don't have the answer, let's go together and maybe look to other people who have also wrestled through these things, and maybe they will have the answer. That's the reason why sometimes on-the-spot debates aren't helpful. Because a lot of times on-the-spot debates are just based on the arguing ability of the people who are debating. And so if I'm a good arguer, my point can still be wrong, but I argued better than you did. And as long as I knew how to argue the point better than you did, then it could make other people go, well, they can't argue their point. That person must be right. And so that's the reason why a lot of times it doesn't work if, if you don't have some kind of safe environment. So come and think, come and follow, come and process with friends. And finally and quickly, come and wonder together. This is an important piece. Because ultimately, trusting Jesus, following Jesus, yes, I want to make sure that I examine these claims. Yes, I want to make sure that, 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 I'm, that I'm following well. I want to make sure that I'm following and letting all of the aspects of who he is impress upon me. And yes, I want to make sure that, that I process these claims with other people so that I'm not trusting my own wisdom to understand it all. But you realize that we have to be really careful that we don't just make Christianity all about making sure I have all the facts and make sure I've vetted them all well, and now I'm walking with Jesus. Because there's one additional thing that I love that Jesus brings. Jesus always invites us. He always invites us into wonder. Sometimes we love holding on to facts because it insulates us from wonder. It insulates us from wondering. It insulates us from some of the uncertainties that are good to still be unsure about and wonder what if. And so Jesus actually does, he actually invites uh, Nathaniel in. When you look at the way that he words this, the very end, you know, you think about what's happened already, right? Nathaniel, look at this. Then Jesus, uh, I'm, I'm going to go back to uh, where, we, where we left off at. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel asked him, come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said with him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi. Nathaniel replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw, under the, saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Have you ever seen something? Something for which there is just no category that you can share to, to convey what it is that you've seen? Have you, ever, have you ever heard something that you're like, I just don't have the words to describe to you what this music just did? I, I don't have the words to describe this person's voice. I don't have the words to, to, to convey to you just how moving this movie that I just saw was. If I, were to, if I were to try to put words to it, I would only take away from the impact. The best I can tell you is, Come and see. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like, man, I'm so overwhelmed that I, I don't know how to truly explain this. Okay, let me ask you another question. Have you ever been in a situation where you for the first time felt like somebody truly understood you? 
You ever felt like that? You ever felt like maybe in moments, you're like, wow, in that moment, you really, truly saw me. I'm really being understood in a way I've never been understood before. And I'm overwhelmed by this because this is, this isn't normal. There's, there's this, there's this feeling that we have when you meet somebody, whether it's a friend, a counselor, a pastor, uh, an older, wiser person, a romantic interest, there's something intoxicating about that. There's something very attractive, even amongst friends or family, when it's like, you get me. There's something about me that maybe other people don't, but, but you get me. And it's overwhelming. It's wondrous. You're like, how does, this thing, how does something like this happen? I didn't give you remedial studies in, in, in my personality. I didn't give you all these tests. I didn't give you a study, a, a, a syllabus about who I am in order for you to know this about me. How do you know it? You're excited about the possibility of finally figuring yourself out. You see, we're all complicated riddles to ourselves and mysteries in many ways. There are things that we understand. Listen, it, you can look at me like I'm crazy. Every one of us in this room has stuff that we do or we think we don't really know why. Why did, why did, why did my mind go there? Why did I immediately react that way? Why do I immediately have fear when that thing happens? Why do I immediately suspect something, whether it's ver- verifiable or not? There are things always working in us all the time. And some of the things we understand, some of the things we don't. And we have high views of ourselves, so maybe we won't admit that, right? It's the reason why in 1 Corinthians 13, Jesus says, when that which is perfect has come, what's going to happen? That which is done in part will be done away. We will then know as we are what? Known fully. That means that we don't know ourselves fully. That means that there's things about ourselves that we don't quite get. There's things about ourselves that we just don't understand. And God gives us these little gifts amongst relationships with each other where it's like, Hey, here's a piece of what it looks like to be fully known. Maybe for a little bit. Here's a person. Or maybe there's a song. Or maybe there's a book. Or maybe there's a movie. Or maybe there's a sunset. Something happens that connects on such a deep level. And I'm going, I just feel known for a little bit. And it's wondrous. And here's the problem. That even in the best situation, even in the best relationship, there are going to be times where they still don't know you fully. You feel alone. No matter how great that song is, it eventually ends. You got to go back to not being known. No matter how great that sunset is, eventually it gets dark. And you're like, what do I do? I'm only as good as the next moment of being known. All I can do is look forward to the next time I get to be known again. I, I, I love the fact that, yes, with this person, I love to know that, that not only do they know me, but that shows that they think about me, that they consider me. That, that they, they ponder me. And, and there's something about that experience that is kind of transforming. Right? You function differently when you feel like you're known. You feel safe when you feel known. You, you, you function. Maybe the anxiety starts to settle a little bit when you actually feel known. You know, it's hard when you're dealing with hard things and you feel like nobody really is going to understand. All that does is just exacerbate. It just makes worse the level of anxiety and uncertainty that we have. Because I just feel like no one's going to understand or no one's going to know. So there's something wondrous about that. But sadly, there's just a limit to how much people can know you. And there's a limit to how much people can love you. That's why when Nathaniel sees Jesus and Jesus says, you know, the King James says, there's no, I saw no guile in you. I saw no deceit 
in you. That says a lot, because that also says that there was no malicious intent, even in Nathaniel's words about Nazareth. Most, most uh, commentators think that maybe Nathaniel was somebody who was just kind of a, a straight shooter. Maybe didn't have a whole lot of social cues. Maybe didn't read the room well. So he's somebody that's just kind of like, yeah, you know, uh, I, just, I just say it like it is. I just tell it like it is. Now keep in mind, those kinds of things need to be discipled. Those, it's, it's not an excuse to just go, I just speak my mind. But there's something, if you're that kind of person, where maybe you don't read the room and you can't read how maybe your actions are going to affect other people, you just say what it is with no malice in your heart. It still can be troubling, but there's something that feels great when somebody goes, I see what your intent is. I see that you actually don't mean any malice here. You feel safe. You feel known. <clears throat> you feel worthy. You feel like I can actually have real relationship. So Nathaniel gets Jesus coming to him and says, you don't have any deceit in you. You don't have any guile in you. I know that you mean well. And you can see Nathaniel going, <clears throat> yes, finally, somebody gets it. Yeah, I say some things a little bit off the wall sometimes, but I never mean anything by it. They keep calling me crazy Nathan, and I'm not crazy, I promise. Why? Because there's something about what Jesus says. Jesus says, and, and keep in mind, yes, Jesus sees the good intentions of our heart, but he also sees the bad ones. A lot of times we love to be able to like, you know, Jesus knows my heart. We've talked about how dangerous that is. Because the Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. So honestly, Jesus does see your heart. He sees how rebellious we are. He sees the ways that we try to hide from ourselves and hide from him and hide from each other. He sees the ways that we actually harm each other because we're protecting ourselves. He sees that too. But here's what I'm going to end. In spite of him seeing who you really are, in spite of him knowing who you really are, the, some of the ugly things that are there, he still keeps coming. He comes. We're here we are in Advent going, he came to see us, to invite us to come and see him. I love you enough that even in the midst of these complexities within your heart, even in the midst of all the ways that maybe you don't see me or you're running from me, I'm still pursuing you. I'm still coming after you. I'm still lovingly wanting to embrace and build real relationship with you. And I'm loving you enough that I'm going to see, and I'm going to make you know that I'm going to see every single aspect of your heart. You don't have to fake. You don't have to act. You don't have to hide. And I'm going to point those things out in your heart. And the things that are good, we're going to affirm. And the things that are not, we're going to carve. We're going to cut away. And it may not feel good all the time, but you're going to know me, and you're going to witness me even when you're not feeling good because I love you that much. We say it all the time. He loves you enough to come and see you where you are but he loves you far too much to leave you that way. Is that where our hearts are today, this Christmas season? Is Christmas just a time to just remember the time that Jesus came to make us feel good? Or is Christmas the time to go, this is the time Jesus came to show that he knows us and to invite us to know him? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the ways that you continue to show us over and over again who you are. God, we are prone to remake you over and over and over again. And we're so prone to, to we, we, we have an idea of who we want you to be. God, I pray that you would indeed crush any of these ideas we have about you and reveal yourselves, yourself to us over and over and over again. God, we need this every day. 
We need this every moment. This, we, I'm, I'm reminded of the psalmist that says, I, I need you every hour. God, that hymn is so true. We need more of you. And God, I'm not asking just for this emotional. Uh, we need that. We want to know emotionally that you're there. But God, I pray that you will guard our hearts and you will guard our minds. And I pray that we would have the right thoughts about you and that we have the right feelings about you and we understand what it means to truly follow you. And God, I pray that in following you, we indeed would examine who you are, that we would process that in community and that we will walk in real humility as we go and tell and share who you are. God, I pray that we do that not of our own strength, not in our own pride, but to your glory and for your sake in order to make your name famous. Father, we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get ready to come to this table, this is one of the things that we want to remember and proclaim over and over and over and over and over again. We basically are saying, I want to, I truly, I believe, it's hard and I wrestle with this, but I believe ultimately that the only hope that I have the only thing in which I trust, the only thing that really can give me lasting joy and hope is, is the belief that in this baby that came, came to give because relationship costs something. This baby came to die. And why did he come to die? He's coming. He came to see me, to know me, to change me, to enable me to know him, to enable me to love like him, to enable me to live like him. And the way he proves that he's always coming that he didn't just die and say, I came, and that's it. He rose again to say, I came, and as the old phrase says, I saw and I conquered. I conquered sin, I conquered death, and I conquered the grave, which proves that whatever it is that is troubling, whatever it is that brings us a, a broken heart, whatever it is that makes us feel like I'm alone, I, I'm unseen, Jesus says, I see you, and I'm constantly coming to see you, and I'm coming to redeem you, and I'm coming to wipe away every tear from your eyes. You will never feel unknown again. If this is where your hope is, you realize that we realize we're broken. We realize we don't have it. We realize that we are far. Some parts of our hearts, we just, we talked about what it means for every aspect of who Jesus is to be overlaid on our hearts. And there are places where it's not there. This is a safe place to come and admit that. This is a safe place to go. Yes, I, I'm coming with a broken heart. I see the places where I don't reflect him well. I see the places in my heart and maybe I don't. And, and, and the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction and enabling me to begin to see and feel I, I'm far from him in these ways. If that's where you are and there's a brokenness and a desire to repent and turn back to him, this table, this meal is for you. If that's not where you are, if you're in a place where you're like, you know, I just, I don't know if this is really for me. I think that maybe I, I've got a good enough handle on who Jesus is, and I don't know that I necessarily want to be able to submit all of this there right now. Or maybe I'm just in a hard place, and I don't know what I believe yet. That's okay. This is a, this is a place where Jesus, I don't want you to come and proclaim something that's not true. You know why? Because that's what it would look like for someone to not see you. We know what it's like to keep faking and going through the motions. That's not a real relationship. Jesus says, I want you to come and be seen. So let this time, let this time pass if that's not where you are. Or let this time be a time where possibly it's the first time you go, Jesus, I want to consider your claims. And maybe right now, I've spent a lifetime maybe considering these claims and something's happening in my heart right now. And I don't have it all together. I don't have it all figured out. I don't have every answer. But you promise I can actually not have all the answers and continue to follow you. 
And I'm going to keep processing this, but maybe this could be the first time for some folks where this is the first time you can come and commune with the God that sees you, because I promise you. What did he say to Nathaniel? Before Philip came and saw you, I saw you. See, before Jesus ever, before you know him, he knows you. So let this be a time, possibly the first time, where you can come and say, I may not know you fully, but I know that you know me, and I'm pursuing you, and I'm examining, and I just want to be present. As our volunteers come, I want to remind you that here, uh, as a part of our church, we do communion by the process of something called intinction. And so what that means is, uh, depending on where you're sitting, we'll file uh, towards the middle aisle, starting in the back. You'll come and take a piece of gluten-free bread, and you'll dip it in either wine or juice as you see fit. The wine will be on the... That's fine. You can stay there if you want. Uh, you can do musical wine. Uh, <laughs> the, the wine will be on the right. The juice will be on the left. And uh, you can take a piece of this, this bread. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks for the Passover meal, this meal that they were fully familiar with. They had uh, partaken of this for centuries and centuries. And they're, they're rejoicing, and they're, they've, had all of these, they've had all of these festivals, and they've been enjoying the time and remembering the ways in which God saw the Jews when they were in Egypt, saw them and protected them, constantly reminding, I see you. I have you, I protect, I support, I supply. All these things they're remembering. And Jesus comes and does what he so often does with every one of our lives. The same way he did with Peter, uh, with Simon, and say, I'm giving you a new name because I'm doing a new thing in you. Jesus says, I'm doing a new thing here. This now, this bread that I'm breaking, this is my body. Body given for you. The body I give so that I can see you and so that you can see me. Take and eat of it. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup, this cup is my blood. This cup is, is my blood that's been poured out for the remission of sins, the blood of a new covenant, because I'm coming to do a new thing. I'm coming to make all things new. I'm coming to restore all things. Take and drink of it and do this in remembrance of me. Here's what Paul tells us. He says that every time we do this, every time we do this, and I always say this is important because we see this in 1 Corinthians 11 and Paul lays this out, but he reminds us of the words of Jesus that as often as we do this, we are remembering the Lord's death until he returns. Why do we explain this? Because depending on whatever your church background is, this just becomes rote routine. It's this perfunctory practice that we have because we're like, I'm a Christian, I've got to do communion. Or I just want to feel like I'm, my heart is right, so let me go do this. No, we're doing this because we're saying, out of everything I've tried, out of everything this week I've tried to feel more known, out of everything I've done to feel more safe, it doesn't work. And all the things that I've done, in many ways, I've done things to make myself feel safe, and I've made others maybe not feel so safe. I've trusted in so many other things, and so ultimately, the only thing I can proclaim is that my only hope is in Jesus. My only hope is that all the things that I don't know, they will be made known at one point. My only hope is that as I continue to consider the claims of Jesus, that he will continue to reveal himself to me and to finish the work that he started when he rescued me. This is our hope. This is our joy. So if this is where you are, as you wrestle, as you struggle, but as you hope, then come, be convinced be reminded, be converted as we know that Jesus, our Lord, is indeed 
good. Let's taste and see together.